Hi. Welcome to What Happens Next, Week 13. My name is Larry Bernstein. Each week since the outbreak of the pandemic, I've hosted a conference call with around 10 different speakers to discuss the implications of COVID-19. The discussion follows a unique format. Each speaker only gets six minutes. This keeps the conversation concise, interesting, and punchy. After everyone has had a chance to speak, there is a question and answer period. I end each session with a quick note of optimism from each speaker. I sent a survey to our listeners last night. This sample of my personal network is not representative of anything because there are way too many hedge fund managers. If you want to take the survey, I sent you a link. Here is what I found surprising. Number one, there is a continuing wave of optimism about treatments, vaccines, death rates, and the spread of COVID in the last week. There has also been a surge in optimism about readiness and testing. Nearly half of you think we will get a vaccine in less than a year, and half think the vaccine will be released before we know it is safe. Yet, nearly all of you will take it if the vaccine is approved by the FDA. 40% of you expect gatherings of more than 50 people in the next quarter, which is up 10% on the week. The audience was a bit more pessimistic about the economy. A majority of you do not see a V recovery. Over 40% see fourth quarter GDP year-on-year down more than 6%. I chose this specific period of the fourth quarter because it compares a reopened post-COVID world to a pre-COVID economy. Over 70% of you expect to return to full employment taking more than two years from now, which is a massively higher number than last week, a 20-point jump. So a very slow recovery is now by far your center case. 82% of you expect a second wave of COVID. Nearly 30% think the second wave will be as deadly as the first. Biden's probability of winning the election has fluctuated wildly in our surveys, from 60% in week one to just 40% in week two. Last week, the audience thought Biden had a 72% chance of victory. Today, 78%. Betting markets still have Biden in the mid-50s. Sounds to me like some of you should visit your local bookie. With reduction in rioting in cities across the U.S. this week, the audience was slightly more optimistic about the breakdown in social order. The fear of increasing escalation in violence greater than the height of the recent riots has declined from 56% to 40% in the past week, and now 40% of you think the riots are over. Your fears that the violence will start to include home robberies plummeted from 25% to just 11%, and only 16% of you now think that the U.S. military will be called upon to keep the peace. A third of you will wear masks at work when coworkers are present, 40% won't travel for work, and 70% plan to work a lot more from home. I added a new question about the relationship between government and business post-COVID, and I was a bit shocked by your answers. Half of you expect corporate taxes to rise dramatically. Half of you thought that the private sector would move away from large cities to less dense and more business-friendly communities. And a third of you thought that the government would demand ever greater affirmative action with regard to both management and board representation. I added a new question about supply chain management, and around 70% of you thought that both firms and government will require more domestic supply chains, especially for drugs, medical equipment, and sensitive sensitive technological parts. More than half of you expect U.S.-Chinese relations to deteriorate over trade and Chinese government policies in places like Hong Kong. 
almost half of you are worried about what you say at work and at school and that newspapers and TV are now censoring what they can say in print or on the air. Will there be NFL football? 9% of you said no. 6% said yes with fans, and 85% said yes but without fans and likely delayed a few months. There was a small uptick to 45% of you now think there will be live classes in university classrooms in the fall. 80% of you expect the online classroom model to be permanent, and a quarter of you expect massive disruption in the college business model with regard to time for degree and price of tuition. Most of you will avoid going to the hospital during COVID for fear that the hospital is not a safe place. It seems that half of you will only use the hospital if you have COVID and your oxygen levels are already at dangerous levels. And similarly, only half of you will use a hospital for a non-COVID major health emergency. I added a question about police reform because this will be one of the major topics of the call. I was a bit shocked at your responses. 36% of you expect a major U.S. city to defund its police department. 45% expect major reductions in funding across the country in police departments, and 43% expect police unions to stop protecting bad cops. Yet 70% of you think that there will be little effect to locate the racial disparities in arrests and convictions. On today's call, we are going to hear from nine different experts. Bjorn Newman is here to discuss the rubella vaccine and why it may help us beat COVID. Saul Morrison will discuss possible lessons from pre-revolution Russia. Gregory Clark will explain how events like the Black Death impacted England and why that nation goes through periodic robustness and fragility. Mark Wolf is the owner of the Vikings and will discuss the NFL. Al Gwertzman and Charlie Schwartz are both back on the show. These two doctors will tell us what has changed in hospitals in the 10 weeks since, they, since we last heard from them. Stuart Greenbaum will talk about the acceleration in university education disruption. Michael Flam will educate us about the 1964 New York City riots. And Ernette Hines will be our closing speaker, who will inform us about the best practices in police training and how to improve police performance. The Chatham House rules apply, and this call is being recorded. Let's start with our first speaker. Bjorn Newman is a fellow at Downing College at Cambridge in the Physical and Biological Natural Sciences. Bjorn, fire away. Thank you, Larry, for the invitation and um, uh, your kind introduction. So, yeah, so my name is Björn Neumann, and I work at the University of Cambridge, where I'm normally, in my normal life, a stem cell biologist working on brain aging and regeneration in the laboratory of Professor Robin Franklin. Since COVID-19, I'm also part of a wider team of scientists um, at the University of Cambridge, where we investigate the hypothesis if the vaccination against mumps, measles, and rubella could convey some kind of protection to people in the population against COVID-19. Um, and this whole hypothesis started with, the re with a general question asking why aged people are more likely to have a worse disease outcome with COVID-19. And there are two explanations for this. A, Generally, older people are more frail. They might have more comorbidities, and therefore it might be more likely for them that they um, have a worse disease development. But there's a second explanation, B, where there could be some kind of additional protection in the younger people that they have acquired, for example, through vaccinations. 
And that's a hypothesis that Adam Young, a neurosurgeon in our laboratory, came up first with um, and started to investigating if there were some kind of um, child vaccinations that only younger people might have received, but they were not available for the older people that now suffer most from the COVID-19 epidemic. And we thought, actually, there could be a threefold evidence that there is. Um, uh, so, we, so we found first evidence that there might be some similarities bet between childhood viruses that are similar to SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19. And the virus we had particular in mind or we found like um, had the most similarity was the rubella virus. And it was threefold evidence for the similarity and they could point that there might be actually some protection by vaccination against rubella again, um, helping patients with COVID-19 develop. And the first evidence, as you might have seen in the paper that Larry linked um, to the itinerary, is that there is strong sequence and structural homology in some of the proteins for rubella um, and SARS-CoV-2. So there are paths between the viruses that are quite similar to each other. The second evidence is then if there is some similarity and the vaccination would help people um, against uh, COVID-19 and ameliorate the disease outcome, then people who are vaccinated should have a better disease outcome. And we found that in a lot of European countries, the correlation, there was a correlation between the rates and the success of vaccination in population, in a population and a disease outcome in uh, COVID-19. So the higher vaccination rate correlated um, with a better disease outcome. And thirdly, we found that when we tested the blood of patients that were infected with, um, that had COVID-19, then we found at the same time a rise of rubella antibodies in them, but no rise against other viruses, saying that somehow the infection with COVID-19 might, ha might have elevated the um, antibody titers against rubella um, because it looks so similar to COVID-19, um, telling us that there, there might be um, some uh, correlation between them. So in conclusion, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence and correlation, but the question is, can we actually establish causality and can we say actually a rubella vaccine would protect against uh, that disease outcome in COVID-19? And that we couldn't do so far, and this is why our current paper is just a hypothesis, but we're currently working on actually establishing um, if A, the similarities that we found between the viruses are actually completely true on the protein level. That is one part of our research. And then in the second branch of research, we try to find in a binary um, experiment that will definitely tell us um, if actually, if we, if we take an animal model, we infect, we vaccinated with uh, the available MMR vaccine, and then we infected with um, SARS-CoV-2 if um, this protects against um, a worse disease outcome. Um, and then how much time is there? There's one, there's still one minute 30, so I would yeah, like to then seconds, use time. it. Okay. Um, so yeah, these are the two experiments we currently conduct, and this should get actually a binary answer if it would make sense to give the MMR vaccine to people, um, to protect against COVID-19. And if I say protect, I don't mean that actually the vaccination against MMR would protect you from getting the disease, the disease in the first place. People would still get sick with the disease, but we feel on the immunological basis that we have and the evidence that we have at the moment, it could reduce the virus titer in patients that are infected and thereby ameliorate disease outcome by keeping virus titers um, lower in these patients that receive the vaccination.
And then maybe as a last point, um, because I'm not an immunologist by training and hardly anyone in our team is, is um, stuff that we learned um, like from working in this quite different field to us um, uh, in this last few months and uh, what went well, what didn't, and um, how did like the environment play a role with it. And I have to say, at least for the University of Cambridge, we quite had like a central organization of COVID-19 research efforts. It was really well carried out. It was really easy for us to find collaborators that had the right expertise to work with each other. Um, it was very, um, very quick in terms of funding acquisition for our project, um, dealing with our development office in the university, and um, uh, also how the approach was taken, like because we put forward a hypothesis and um, it was good to keep like a scientific approach within the university saying like, this is just a hypothesis. We want to test it. We put it out there, but we treat it as a hypothesis, not sensationalizing like findings or promising too much, but rather going the um, scientific approach and uh, trying to find a way to actually test the hypothesis. Okay. And this is where we would like to close and I'm looking forward to maybe answer questions at a later point. Perfect, Bjorn. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Gary Saul Morrison. Uh, Saul is the Lawrence Dumas Professor of Arts and Humanities and a Professor of Slavic Languages and Literatures at Northwestern University. I've asked Saul to talk about possible lessons from pre-revolutionary Russia. That's Revolution of 1917. Fire away, Saul. Uh, yeah, I've been asked about parallels with Russia for actually several decades. You, you may remember that when uh, speech codes and the like started, coming onto university campuses in the 90s. The New Republic did a whole issue directed to it, the New York Times reporter. Richard Bernstein did a book called Dictatorship of Virtue, and it first came into the public consciousness with people asking how long would it be before this spread to the rest of society, and how long would it go? And I've been asked about this um, you know, for decades, and then about a week ago, the Wall Street Journal, um, Barton Swain there, asked to interview me about it, uh, I don't know how strong the parallels are between Russia and the, before the revolution and ourselves today. There is quite a number of suggestive parallels, but I'm not an American expert, so I can't really um, go that far just to suggest what the parallels uh, might be. Since the movie was published, my email box has been overwhelmed with responses, a great a number of them, from emigres from the Soviet Union, um, you know, and several have said things like, at last there's an American who gets it. Of course, that doesn't mean they're right. It means their perspective is shaped by similar experiences to what academically um, uh, I have studied. Uh, the, what they have in mind is a group that in the 19th century was called the intelligentsia. That's a word we get from Russian where it was coined about 1860, but it did not mean, this is what's really important, uh, educated people, it certainly did not mean open-minded people, intellectually curious people. Um, to be a member of the intelligentsia, and intelligent as it was called, you needed to basically have three characteristics, one of which was um, you had to identify primarily as that, so you could no longer be Think of yourself as a nobleman. If you had a profession that had to be regarded as purely unimportant, um, and your primary identity had to be to the rest of the intelligentsia, and this was the second point, its way of thinking, uh, it varied a bit, but it always included 
um, atheism, materialism, and a belief in socialism of some sort, perhaps anarchism, and uh, revolution. This was your prime loyalty. And the characteristic thought was that you had to be absolutely and totally certain. That is, um, there was no room for a middle ground, for compromise. You couldn't be um, an agnostic. You couldn't think, well, this is, you know, maybe this is a good way to proceed, but maybe not. Uh, And part of the way in which you justified this was to claim that your views were based on science. The term social science was taken quite literally, as you probably know, Marxism thought of itself as a hard science. By the Soviet period, that meant if, you know, Einstein's theories conflicted with Marxism-Leninism, then Einstein had to go, uh, that, Jeanette, same thing with genetics. This sort of thinking was rooted in the pre-revolutionary intelligentsia, where it was very odd because people who understood science thought that isn't the first characteristic of science open-mindedness, questioning, uh, Doesn't it mean that some things in science are always changing and therefore you can't take it as a block? Some things are more certain than others. And you can't, above all, you can't get moral or political criteria out of science. Science just tells you what is, not what should be. But that was not the view of the Russian intelligentsia. Um, You know, one of their critics, a philosopher named Solovyov, you know, famously paraphrased what they call, what he called, the syllogism of the intelligentsia, which went, uh, man is descended from the apes, therefore love your neighbor as yourself. And that was considered you know, a logical correlation. By the, the point was that there could be no, it was always zero sum, anything that didn't help us uh, help the enemy. You, no compromise was possible. And therefore, if you had an opportunity to destroy your opponent, you should push it as far as possible or you were a traitor. Lenin made that an explicit philosophy. By the 19, by roughly 1900, there was a large group of people who didn't fit this. They were people who called themselves liberals. They didn't share the ideology. There was a large number of them. Um, They weren't considered the classical intelligentsia, but they existed and they formed liberal parties. But they shared a similar mentality. Above all, their idea was you must never, ever criticize the revolutionaries. You were their allies, and no matter how far they went, you had to apologize for them. So the heads of the Constitutional Democratic Party, uh, when asked if to condemn terrorism, now terrorism meant thousands of people, police officers, post office men, anyone who wore a government uniform was in danger of being murdered, or having sulfuric acid thrown in their face. Bombs were being thrown in cafes. Thousands upon thousands more people were killed by terrorists and by police, incomparably uh, more number. But when the liberals were asked, would you condemn terrorism, the famous quotation from the head of the party was, condemn terrorism? Why, that would be the moral death of the party. Well, people after the revolution would point out that it was the fact that their was no resistance that in a revolutionary situation, as the war provided, no one would resist um, the Bolsheviks or anyone like them because they were morally incapable of doing so. They had signed on never, ever to resist. It was not possible um, earlier, and it certainly wasn't 
possible then. And that's the thing that um, uh, the Russians have found so similar. Let me just give you just one quotation from Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his Gulag Archipelago after he talks about how there was a workers' uprising in a Soviet city and the Soviets moved in and basically executed or sent to Siberia everybody there, the whole town. And he writes like this. All you freedom-loving, quote, left-wing thinkers in the West, you left laborites, you progressive American, German, and French students, as far as you were concerned, none of this amounts to much. As far as you were concerned, this whole book of mine is a waste of effort, has nothing to do with you. You may suddenly understand it all someday, but only when you yourselves hear hands behind your back there and step ashore onto our gulag archipelago. This is sort of what Russians see as you know, possible, and above all, they see it as the reason that people are morally afraid to say, yes, we agree so far, but we will not let it go any further. And that's what the Russians who are writing to me say. This is you know, um, what is happening uh, here. I'm not an American expert, I repeat, and I can't say how far. It certainly, I can say, is the case on university campuses where I live, and I can talk about that. I'm not an expert on the rest of society. So I'll come back to you in the Q&A. Uh, for those listeners who remember, Saul spoke uh, a few weeks ago uh, about a short story by Chekhov, so we've come a long way. Um, our next speaker is Gregory Clark. Uh, Gregory is a professor of economics at UC Davis. He spoke to my book club a number of years ago in Chicago about his book, The Sun Also Rises. Gregory, go ahead. Thank you, Larry. Uh, England is one of the best documented of all pre-industrial societies. For England, for example, we can estimate the annual economic output of the economy all the way back to 1209 at the height of the Middle Ages. And the pre-industrial English economy was battered by all manner of shocks. Uh, there were weather fluctuations, epidemics such as the Black Death, which recurred many times over 300 years from 1348 to 1665, epizootics such as the Moraine of 1319, which killed 60% of English cattle in that year, uh, civil wars such as the War of the Roses, 1455 to 87, and the Parliamentarians versus the Royalists from 1642 to 51, and then the Glorious Revolution of 1689. There were fires, uh, such as the Great Fire of London in 1666. And there were external shocks, such as Napoleon's Continental Blockade from 1806 to 14. And then late, lastly, the Cotton Famine of 1861 to 5. <clears throat> but what was remarkable about all of these pre-industrial shocks was the robustness of the pre-modern economy. The plague, for example, at its first onset in 1348 to nine, probably killed about a third of English population within one year. But uh, despite the devastation and the shock, the harvest of 1349 was safely secured. And by 1350, output per person in England had risen about 50% above pre-plague levels as a result of the improved land-labor ratio. Relative prices changed immediately to reflect labor scarcity, 
but the economy marched on seemingly completely unhindered. Continued outbreaks of the plague over the next 100 years reduced English population from a peak of 6 million around 1315 to a mere 2 million by 1450. As towns became more hazardous from disease, the population dispersed to the countryside and to the village. Yet, the measured efficiency of this shrunken economic system, the output levels relative to the inputs, actually rose to its pre-industrial peak, also around 1450. Indeed, it was not until well into the Industrial Revolution period in the 1830s that this level was finally uh, surpassed. Uh, as with the plague, similarly, the civil wars of the 15th and 17th centuries made no visible impact in the economic record. Even with towns besieged and armies clashing at places such as Marston Moor and Naseby, production continued unabated. More remarkably, returns on assets uh, such as capital and land were completely unaffected uh, by the Civil War years. The Glorious Revolution of 1689 established parliamentary supremacy and the modern constitutional order and has been cited by some political theorists as the defining moment in the transition to the modern world. But it was of so little consequence to the ordinary activities of the economy that asset prices were completely unaffected by the change either immediately or in subsequent years. Again, the dual disasters of the last great, great plague outbreak in London in 1665, which killed 20% of the population, followed by the devastating fire in the heart of the city and of uh, commerce in 1666, which left homeless about an equivalent share of the population, left no measurable trace on English economic activity in those or subsequent years. What has been alarming about the English economy in the last hundred years is how much more fragile this economic system has become. With growing international collection, connections and the elaboration of finance, disease, war and politics threaten much greater and longer lasting impacts on economic output now than for our pre-industrial ancestors. Indeed, Within the last 20 years, the 2008 financial crisis, Brexit, and COVID-19 have had much more depressing effect on UK output in subsequent years than have all of the plagues, fires, and wars in English history from 1208 up till 1850. And indeed, as the economic and financial system elaborated, there has been surprisingly little concern about this increasing fragility. Is there a trade-off we need to consider about the elaboration of finance, for example, and the consequent risks to economic stability? Is there also a trade-off between elaborate international supply chains and the security of the system overall? Perhaps the past has something to teach us in this regard. Thank you, Larry. Perfect. We'll come back to you in Q&A in a minute. Uh, our next speaker is Mark Wilf. Uh, Mark is a principal at Garden Homes, uh, his family's real estate firm, which is one of the largest real estate developers in the U.S. He is also the owner of the Minnesota Vikings. 
Uh, we want to hear, will there be NFL football? Mark, let us know. Okay, thank you, Larry. I uh, hope everyone in your families are safe and well. I appreciate the chance to be here today to provide first some thoughts as an NFL owner on how we're moving forward with the season this year, and second, to give you some highlights on how we at the Vikings are engaged in social justice efforts. And, Larry, to what you asked first, let me say that I'm optimistic that we will play football this NFL season. There's some uncertainty about this and about how we'll deal with fans in the stands, but we should be playing football this fall. Uh, we're staying close to the NFL, their chief medical officer, Dr. Alan Sills, as well as the Vikings doctors and training staff. Those medical and training professionals are optimistic we will play football this season, so that makes me optimistic. Uh, the NFL is taking a phased-in approach to return to work and return to play. In phase one, we're focused on bringing our business staff back to the office, and then we'll move to bring our coaches and players back. It's important to note that to return to play, not only does it need to be in line with state health regulations in Minnesota, but it also has to be collectively bargained with the NFL Players Union, and those conversations are going on right now. We just opened our team headquarters this past Monday for essential business staff, those who need to be in our facility to do their jobs effectively. And right now we have about 60 employees in our building, which is less than 30% of our full-time staff. The biggest challenge we face will be getting our players back together and practicing in a very physical sport. We will need to test our athletes frequently, and we'll need to keep our building pristine to keep the virus out. Our players and coaches will likely follow our business group back into the team headquarters a few weeks from now, and right now our 90-man roster is participating in our off-season program virtually. Training camp typically begins the third week in July, and we're working on a training camp right now to determine what it looks like and whether or not we will have fans in attendance. In Minnesota, training camp has been a great tradition for us, for our fans to watch the team come together each summer free of charge. The NFL is also taking a hard look at the preseason schedule. As you know, each NFL season has four games, two at home and two on the road, and that number may be reduced for this season. While there is a fair amount of uncertainty, the NFL has a little more time to continue to work on these challenges, as well as to learn from the other sports in our country. And you've seen the announcements about the NBA, NHL, MLB and MLS all preparing to return to play. There are also a number of task forces at the league and team level that are working on returning to games and stadiums. A lot of this work is being done on how we will deal with fan ingress and egress, seating and concessions. One thing that's become abundantly clear to our fans and to our nation is how important professional sports and the NFL are to our nation. Sports provide great shared moments, camaraderie, family connection, and even a healthy escape. Hope and joy as you root for your favorite team. I'm optimistic and very excited about kicking off our NFL season at U.S. Bank Stadium on Sunday, September 13th against our rival, the Green Bay Packers. Second, on race relations and the NFL. In terms of the current climate on racial and social justice in the NFL, there are, of course, a lot of conversations and efforts going on that have been heightened by the killing of George Floyd, which happened on Memorial Day about 20 blocks from the Viking Stadium, U.S. Bank Stadium. With the killing of George Floyd, a lot of us in the NFL had very similar emotions to those being felt across the country. It's led to a lot of different conversation, a lot of listening. Our conversations have been with our players and coaches, with our internal diversity council, members of our front office, employees, and Vikings alumni, such as former Minnesota Supreme Court Justice Alan Page, who spoke to our staff and to our players just this past week. We're also talking to and listening to a number of people throughout our community. Ultimately, we understand that as an NFL franchise, the Vikings have a significant platform that allows us to address these important issues.
That platform is both a privilege and an obligation that we use for good to make a positive impact in our state and our community. Our organization has a longstanding tradition of its players being engaged in the community. Over the past few seasons, we've had a group of players who've been more focused on social justice issues, dealing with criminal justice reform, law enforcement community relations, and working with inner city students on education, food security, and other matters. Our players created a social justice committee within our locker room a few years ago and have stepped up their community engagement since the George Floyd tragedy. For example, eight Vikings team leaders met last weekend with the Minneapolis chief of police and several other police officers to talk about race relations, law enforcement reform, and the need for change. We're proud of our players for taking on these challenging issues. My own family, the Will family, has had a long history of working on human rights issues, tolerance, and respect. Being the children of Holocaust survivors, our family has been focused on these significant matters for many, many years. The Vikings football team is a great example of young men from all walks of life, backgrounds, races, and religions who work together towards one goal. I have personally been so inspired by their work and efforts to use their platform to make an impact. Thanks again, Larry, and thanks to all of you for your time and for the opportunity to talk with you today. Thank you. Great. Okay, now we go to the uh, the medical section of this discussion. Uh, we're going to start with uh, Al Gwertzman. Um Al is a attending anesthesiologist uh, at the Atrium Health. Um, Al, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you, Larry. What did just one quick thing. For, before you get started, Al, um, for our speakers who are not talking, if you can hit your mute button, uh, someone's mute button is not. Al, go ahead. Okay, thank you, Larry. What have doctors learned about COVID? The short answer is not a lot. Fortunately, we are managing COVID surprisingly well, especially given the compressed time frame we have been operating under. COVID, with a plethora of signs and symptoms, has become medicine's 21st century great masquerader. It is an elusive and dangerous foe. 70 to 80% of its victims are asymptomatic or show only very mild symptoms, allowing unknowing and undetected spread. Severe illness and death from COVID due to unknown genetic predisposition and other risk factors has created anxiety and fear. As far as course of treatment and changes, despite better understanding of COVID's mechanism of action, unprecedented financial resources, and the greatest global minds and institutions working hand-in-hand with healthcare systems, our therapeutic toolbox is disappointingly essentially empty. Dual therapy with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin has not been shown to be effective and may, when used in high doses, lead to life-threatening effects on the heart's electrical system. However, prophylactic use, not unlike for malaria prevention, remains to be seen and studied. Interleukin-6 has not demonstrated any effectiveness. Near-term pre-vaccine options, like convalescent plasma and monoclonal antibodies, may show some benefit in severely ill COVID patients but benefit remains unclear. Antivirals. Unfortunately, most have not shown efficacy, but the good news is remdesivir, one of the antivirals, is promising, and in several studies has been shown to shorten duration of illness. This drug will most likely remain in our armamentarium, and its use and effectiveness for prophylaxis and treatment in less severe disease is being studied. Blood thinners. Clots in the lung, brain, and heart are life-threatening and blood thinners have been shown to be effective in treating these very ill COVID patients and reducing mortality. Unlike the therapeutics, 
our supportive, our supportive care equipment box is full and effective. Fortunately, as time went on through postmortem examination and better understanding of COVID mechanism of action, we learned that we were treating the wrong disease. Vents were doing more harm than good, increasing death rates at an alarming rate. Treatment of the correct disease process, utilizing non-invasive oxygen support equipment such as high-flow nasal cannula and CPAP, was probably the single most important intervention leading to decreased patient morbidity and mortality. These days now, vents are utilized only as a last resort for severely ill hypoxic patients. Fortunately, death rates on vents have also decreased. So as far as lessons learned, initially medicine was on the offense, very aggressive in using big bazookas. Oddly, after four months, we learned that sometimes less is more. Our current regimen is far less invasive, lower tech, and more narrowed in focus, and has been effective in managing COVID. This includes prevention such as the mask, hand hygiene, and physical distancing, oxygen support, blood thinners, remdesivir, and I would say most importantly, the human body's most amazing adaptability and resilience, utilizing its complex defense mechanisms. As far as the future and second wave, assuming no vaccine, the most important global experiment will be taking place in Sweden in late fall. To answer the question whether natural herd immunity or the no lockdown approach is effective in managing morbidity and mortality from the virus. The data and outcomes analysis will have, a ma will have major implications on how COVID is managed here at home and globally in the future. Sweden, which has support from the WHO, has accepted a near-term higher mortality rate of about 10%. About half of these patients are nursing home patients, and this rate is about two times the global mm -hmm. average. Swedish epidemiologists have predicted about 30 to 40% immunity, but their current numbers stand about just below 10%. Herd immunity requires approximately 60%, so one might conclude the experiment has failed. However, the issues for Sweden, as in the United States, is testing remains inaccurate, so the predictive value of the data remains low, as we have seen many times before with COVID. As a result, unfortunately, most likely only real-time experience and data will provide accurate outcomes related to COVID death and infection. Regarding the U.S., expected local and regional microspikes have occurred, especially as more states reopen. As long as this remains localized and that there is no vaccine available and hospitals are not overwhelmed, I contend that these spikes may actually be welcomed to help communities further the process of herd immunity and to blunt the impact of a potential second wave in the fall. Hospitals will be ready for a second wave if it does occur. A more thoughtful, stepwise, less reactionary plan is in place. Equipment such as high-flow nasal cannula, vents, PPB have seen increased production and will meet demand. Hospitals will most likely see fewer patients, and we are more adept at separating hot and cold patients and have improved our ability to flex up the number of ICU beds and staff. Also, our treatment protocols are more successful even for the most severely ill. Finally, reopening of the hospitals for business and COVID testing has, has proven to be medicine's most challenging and risky current proposition. Our task is to ensure hospitals are safe havens despite, having hot despite housing hot patients and to prevent any outpatient or visitor from a hospital-acquired COVID infection. Risk strategy, not unlike state openings, requires a balance between risk mitigation and revenue production. We also utilize a four-phase or tier approach, introducing healthy patients, 
with low-risk same-day same day procedures first. Then over several weeks, we ramp up to a phase or tier four, which has the sickest patients with high-risk procedures and lengthy hospital stays. The greatest obstacle we face is the inaccuracy in testing due to limitations of the standard RT-PCR deep nasopharyngeal swab test. We do not fully understand the course of the infection as it relates to viral load, leading to false negatives. John Hopkins has estimated that up to 95% of those tested on day one of infection may actually have a false negative test result. Mm -hmm. Through the course of infection, that number, that number may decrease to as low as 8 to 12%. Symptomatic patients or those in highly infected populations may see a reduced false negative rate. Finally, the second challenge is no national testing guidelines for elective surgery patients or visitors, and often the process seems illogical. Everyone entering the hospital was, must wear a mask and have their temperatures checked. All outpatients are COVID tested and have screening questionnaires, but the time frame can vary anywhere from two days up to 10 days. Some hospitals require patients to attest to self-quarantining after the test until the date of surgery, while others do not. Visitors are not COVID tested and may or may not have screening questionnaires. Uh, this creates a potential breach in safe haven or bubble protocol. As far as our PPE, if a patient passes the questionnaire, is asymptomatic and negative COVID, the medical team only follows pre-COVID universal precaution. That means no N95s. At our hospital, we estimated the likelihood of encountering a false negative outpatient in the OR at about one in 500. So without the N95 and we are encountering this patient, the team would be at significant increased risk for infection. The good news is that four weeks into reopening, we have not seen an increase in patient, visitor, or healthcare worker infection rates. So despite the potential holes, our current strategy appears to be working well. If this trend continues, it may be a good template for other sectors. Thank you very much, Larry. Thanks, Al. Uh, Charlie Schwartz is up next. Uh, he's a cardiovascular surgeon at St. Joseph Mercy Oakland Hospital. He was with us 10 weeks ago. Charlie, what's new? Thanks, Larry. I run cardiac surgery for a hospital in Michigan, north of Detroit. We had a significant COVID population. I spoke early on in the call in week three during peak COVID. Our hospital was overwhelmed, as so many others were, nearly 90% COVID patients. Larry asked for an update. As we slowly emerge from this viral pandemic, we actually have taken much time to reflect on what happened, what we did well, where we can improve, and where the challenges lie ahead. So this virus attacked us. My friends and I in the ICU kept coming back to the story of War of the Worlds, written by H.G. Wells. This coronavirus was horrific. Many mortalities, 110,000 deaths. We didn't find a cure or an adequate treatment. In medicine, we call this supportive care. And then slowly, the virus decreased in prevalence. In his book, the invaders died from pathogens that caused the common cold here on Earth. Yes, we had social distancing, but in the hospital, it turns out, we found the best defense. Wear a mask and wash your hands. Last week, we discharged our last patient with COVID and were COVID-free for several days. Then suddenly admitted three patients on Thursday. So the virus remains but certainly it has decreased significantly in this region. We have several large hospital systems in this area that cared for thousands of COVID patients. Recently, all hospital workers underwent antibody testing. 
Many thought this population in particular would be 40 to 50% positive. There turned out to be a 6% positive rate. Many were disappointed that they didn't have some level of immunity or a golden ticket. It shows that if you wear a mask and wash your hands properly, it's hard to get the virus. The virus transmission is mostly from coughing, sneezing, breathing. It's a respiratory virus, wear a mask. Having said that, I know most on this call have Amazon boxes piled high on the porch and you haven't opened the mail in four days. So during peak COVID, our ER visits for chest pain were down 55%. Pediatric ER visits were down 71%. Several studies showed significant decrease in patients presenting with aortic dissections, one of the most lethal injuries that I care for as a cardiac surgeon. So where were these patients? The answer is they stayed home. The fear of COVID was tremendous. There were images of overwhelmed ERs on TV, patients in hallways stacked on top of each other, hospital workers with lack of PPE. Triple the number of patients died at home during this time period. In the hospital, necessity was the mother of invention. We learned to set up multiple entrances to the ER. The initial evaluation was with iPads. Our pre-op areas, post-op areas, and operating rooms were turned into ICUs. ICU innovation was very impressive. Negative pressure rooms became critical. We had long IV tubing so we could have IV poles and pumps in the halls so nurses could decrease exposure to patients and decrease the amount of PPE used. There were extraordinary measures done to save lives. Some centers placed the sickest patients on partial bypass machines known as an ECMO circuit for respiratory failure. Others felt these patients' prognoses were too poor. But others, including NYU, showed relatively good results from this treatment. Masks were a constant debate, as you heard. Surgical masks versus N95 masks. When did we need an N95 mask? How long can you wear one? How do we disinfect them? We figured out the answers to these questions along the way. In terms of testing, now every patient is tested within 72 hours of surgery with a PCR test, highly sensitive and specific, and the morning of surgery, a second test with the Abbott rapid test. Our testing has improved significantly, both with access and turnaround time. When we decided to open the operating rooms to elective cases, we started slowly, opening four ORs initially. We had heard that if a post-op cardiac surgery patient became exposed and turned COVID positive, mortality was very high. So we changed our entire post-op pathway. We now have the least amount of people near our patients, minimal exposure. We have less consultants, Patients stay in the same room in the ICU with the same nursing staff. No longer do we send them to a step-down unit, then to a regular floor. Teaching rounds are not performed on the unit. Our surgical volume is slowly returning. We are working on a backlog of cases in addition to new cases. Some nurses were furloughed and are returning. Our percentage of patients are definitely reluctant to have any surgery at this time. Additionally, some older surgeons and physicians are slow to return. I must add that the no visitor policy was extremely stressful for families, physicians, and nursing staff. Entire concept of being hospitalized without family at the bedside is problematic. But we are winning here in Michigan. A large hospital system in the state recently performed 4,700 consecutive COVID tests on preoperative patients. All were negative. 
they have stopped mandatory pre-op testing. We are stockpiling PPE for a possible second wave. There were a lot of heroes, but the nurses were incredible. The virus hasn't disappeared. Wash your hands, wear a mask. It's a respiratory virus. Charlie, thank you. Uh, I'll come back to you in the Q&A in a minute. In the meantime, let's start with Stuart Greenbaum. Stuart is the former dean and Bank of America Professor Emeritus of Managerial Leadership and an adjunct professor in finance at the Washington University in St. Louis, Owen Business School. Uh, Stuart, I've asked you to talk about the disruption in the university. Fire away. Thank you for the opportunity, Larry. Can you hear me? Perfectly. Larry? Yes. Okay. Uh, Universities are among our most durable institutions, seemingly uh, less prone to failure than marriages, corporations, or even religious institutions. However, before the COVID plague, higher education was undergoing serious disruption in the United States. Costs were rising faster than inflation. Clients rebelled at the length and relevance of what's taught. Domestic demand was shrinking. Venerable small private uh, colleges were exiting the industry, and technology was disrupting time-honored pedagogy. To complicate matters further, the professoriate was morphing from a dominantly tenure and research-based population to a two-tiered labor force where inexpensive practice professors substitute for traditional faculty. Admissions and pricing constitute yet another nightmare as the wedge between sticker and average selling price widened and every sale became the product of an expensive negotiation. The COVID plague, more more a catalyst than innovator, has not so much altered trends as accelerated them. For example, online pedagogy has been growing slowly for at least two decades. COVID has forced widespread instantaneous implementation of this more impersonal technology. COVID has altered the pattern of demand as well. International programs have withered as many schools came to depend on international student revenues, predominantly Chinese. This dependence was seen by many as unsustainable well before COVID. So let me tender a few thoughts on cost, pricing, and the services offered by colleges and universities in the U.S., and remember that most of my work experience has been at business schools and private universities. Expedited by COVID, we will likely lose considerably more than 100 smaller private colleges and universities in the next few years. We will be left with state schools and the larger, better endowed private institutions that will serve a declining fraction of higher education aspirants. Universities and colleges will likely be forced to narrow the gap between average selling and sticker price. Their role in wealth distribution, a role they can ill afford, will wane. Price concessions are likely to be limited to those funded by gifts and endowments. This will increase net revenues by elevating effective tuition. Administrative costs will shrink along with sticker prices and the university's social agenda. If the community wishes educational institutions to become more inclusive, they will need to find the financing elsewhere. To expect the Chinese and private or the private universities to finance inclusion is simply unrealistic. 
States and federal government could, of course, reduce tuition at public universities to nominal levels, as was the past practice, and is now an integral part of the progressive political agenda. This would clearly expose private universities to even greater financial pressure to behave more like private businesses and to put their houses in order. The professoriate has evolved into a social economic hierarchy that is likely to be unsustainable. The division, between, the division pits research against teaching faculty. The latter teaches more, is paid less, and typically has less job security and political power. Some adjuncts have unionized, um, but many remain invidiously aggrieved. The uh, university will need to placate the teaching faculty, especially if they expect them to continue providing the bulk of the teaching at high-quality standards in an increasingly demanding teaching environment. Now, much of the complaint about services and curriculum focuses on employment at graduation. Hence, the successful higher education program will ultimately need to guarantee graduates of both bachelor's and professional programs gainful employment upon graduation. This will mean either a suitable job, entry into a suitable professional school, a paid internship, or compensation. A probable last resort, compensation might be capped at a year and offer half of the representative's starting salary. Such a guarantee program is, in my, op in my opinion, feasible, even if it sounds a bit radical. In periods of economic stability, successful business schools find employment for 90% or more of their full-time MBAs within 90 days of graduation, and similarly for bachelor's degree graduates. Finally, all of the degree programs offered at universities and colleges need to be abbreviated and incorporate substantial online components. Notwithstanding the fears of many, this need not damage the quality of educational offerings. Think of undergraduate and graduate programs, each shortened by one year, and some of the lost time recaptured by reducing holidays, including summer recess. Online, if limited to where it is most effective, may indeed improve the quality of teaching. Student interaction may prove more limited, but the most talented faculty can be substituted for the less skilled. By expanding audiences, online offerings will reduce direct costs. Shorter programs will further reduce students' indirect opportunity costs. Transition to this new equilibrium would ordinarily require years, perhaps decades, but the COVID plague will almost certainly expedite warranted change. The stress of adjustment at institutions of higher learning is likely, however, to be palpable, if not excruciating. That's it, Larry. Okay, Stuart. Um, thank you. I'll come back with a bunch of questions in a minute. Our next speaker is Michael Flam. Uh, he is a professor of history at Ohio Wesleyan University. Uh, I signed a few chapters from his book, In the Heat of the Summer, about the New York City riots of 1964. Michael, please go ahead. Uh, thank you, Larry, for the uh, invitation. I'm happy to offer a few thoughts here about the 1960s in the hope that they might uh, offer a few insights into what we have experienced uh, in the past week or so. 
the underlying causes of the racial unrest in New York City in July 1964 were sadly the uh, same factors that we see over and over again. Poor schools, substandard housing, high poverty and unemployment rates. In 1964, the nation as a whole was riding a, a wave of prosperity, unlike today, uh, but automation was already causing uh, significant deindustrialization and a serious erosion of uh, good blue-collar jobs in urban areas like New York City. In fact, uh, Mayor Wagner and uh, Congressman Adam Clayton Powell were at a conference on automation in Europe at the time that the riot erupted in New York City, creating a a serious leadership void. The uh, rising expectations generated by the Civil Rights Act, which President Johnson signed into law only two weeks earlier, were also an important issue. Many younger African Americans, especially in the North, saw the legislation as too little, too late. Um, these younger and in many cases angrier African Americans also feared that the Republican nominee Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater, who had voted against the Civil Rights Act, might seek to block implementation of the law if he was elected in November 1964. Now, police brutality or misconduct is almost always the precipitating factor in urban unrest. It's the, the spark that lights the tinder. Uh, a police killing often causes people to snap because the incident turns an environment that was barely tolerable into something that is intolerable. Police shootings, whether ultimately judged good or bad by legal authorities, also tend to shine a spotlight on two other equally serious issues. The first is police neglect, the under-policing of black neighborhoods. Um, and this was a, a common problem in the 1960s. Um, as compared to today, where we often hear complaints about over-policing and how it has contributed uh, in recent decades to the phenomenon known as mass incarceration. Uh, the second problem uh, is police disrespect, and that's the day-to-day -day harassment or mistreatment by white officers of black Americans. These aggressions, whether micro or macro, often cause resentment, anger, and frustration to fester. And that, in turn, fuels the explosion that comes with a blatant act of police violence, such as the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Um, now let me turn to what the police did, uh, what the New York Police Department did in 1964, and how that perhaps compares to what we've seen in Minneapolis and other cities um, in recent weeks. Um, it's important to note um, that uh, the racial violence that erupted in New York City in July 1964 was largely confined to two black neighborhoods, Central Harlem in Manhattan and Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. And as a result, the New York Police Department, which uh, was the largest police department in the nation by a, a considerable degree, the NYPD was able to flood Harlem with officers. And they, in turn, discharged their weapons at a rate never seen before or since. It's noteworthy that in both 1935 and 1943, when the NYPD confronted serious unrest in Harlem, it, officers never used their weapons the way they did in 1964. It's, it's truly remarkable or fortunate that only one person was killed, at least officially, in 1964. The uh, police also managed in 1964 to contain the unrest in Harlem 
by closing subway stations, rerouting city buses, and blocking the thoroughfares with fire engines and sanitation trucks. Most white and black residents of New York City were unaffected by the rioting and looting, which burned out after about 72 hours, which is the typical duration for any kind of unrest or rioting or looting. Uh, but the NYPD's containment policy in 1964 failed to protect small local businesses, which suffered heavy damage. The owners, some were black, most were Jewish, also paid a really heavy price due to a lack of insurance, which was costly and hard to get. Uh, the unrest that we've seen here in 2020 um, has posed a great challenge to police departments across the nation for three main reasons. Aside from the political, economic, and psychological state of the crisis caused by the pandemic. And th these three main reasons, I like to call them the three Ds. So the first has to do with the diversity of the crowds. Um, we've witnessed substantial and unprecedented participation of whites in these protests and demonstrations. Uh, this in turn has focused media attention on police practices, and it's probably had a restraining effect on what the police were trying to do, at least after the initial protests. Uh, the second D I want to talk about is the decentralization of the protests or the looting that subsequently followed. Um, unlike in 1964, the rioting and looting um, that we've seen in 2020 it has spilled out of minority communities and it has spread to the central business districts and the political power centers of major cities like New York, where Soho and Midtown in particular were hit hard. Um, containment was simply not as possible or effective in 2020 as it was in the 1960s. And the third D has to do with the digitalization of technology. Almost everyone now has a smartphone with a good camera. Video is what makes incidents go viral. Viral. Video is what causes a precipitating factor today to cause cities across the country to go up in flames. And at the same time, um, a violent fringe has been able to use the social media uh, in recent weeks to evade police uh, now, that said, it is really, really important to remember um, that the vast majority of the demonstrators who have been taken to the streets in the last week or so were peaceful. Um, and so let's also hope that the uh, police departments are better prepared uh, if we have another round of unrest or if we face a long, hot summer in 2020. Um, a quick final thought here. My first book was entitled Law and Order. And in recent days, I have fielded many media requests about whether President Trump plans to use the issue of law and order in 2020 and whether he can win on it. And uh, here I'll just give my short answer. I think that President Trump does certainly intend to use the issue of law and order, uh, but I am not uh, confident that he will be able to use it successfully. And the two main reasons here are that um, unlike uh, in 2016 or unlike um, Richard Nixon in 1968, President Trump is the incumbent, not the challenger. It's going to make it much harder for him to use this issue effectively. Um, and second, in 1968, uh, Richard Nixon benefited tremendously from the presence of a third-party candidate on the ballot, uh, Alabama Governor George Wallace, who was seen as an extremist on the issue and made Nixon seem uh, very moderate and respectable in comparison. In 2020, it's unlikely that we'll see a, a third-party candidate like that on the ballot. Um, Trump will not have that that third candidate out there to compare himself to, and so I don't think he'll be able to use uh, the issue of law and order successfully. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Our last speaker is Arnett Heinz. Arnett is the founder and CEO of Hillard Heinz. Uh, he was also a member of the permanent uh, 
the Presidential Protective Division, where he served more than four years on the permanent detail protecting President Mrs. Bush and President Mrs. Clinton. In April of 2000, he was appointed special agent in charge of the Secret Service Chicago Field Office. Uh, he founded a security investigations firm here in Chicago, and he partnered with the former Chicago police chief. Arnett, take it away. Thank you, Larry. Uh, you know, one of the most challenging responsibilities for any government agency, whether it's federal, state, or local, has been providing professional policing services. And it's n nothing less one of the most essential responsibilities any government agency can provide. Our nation depends on it, the collective work of law enforcement to provide a safe environment for everyone to live, work, and play. Um, you know, today, there's some of the greatest challenges that law enforcement is confronting relates to how they're going to build relationships across the communities they serve. How do they build and maintain trust? How do they provide transparency on uh, critical issues that they're confronting? And how do they... Um, uh, reinforce its legitimacy because as we've all kind of heard recently about the concept of defunding policing, there's a strong attack on the legitimacy of law enforcement in our nation today. The topics that Larry and I discussed um, uh, covering today in, in our discussion focus on four critical questions. And before I touch on those questions, I'd like to provide an overview of what I believe are the eight critical areas confronting our nation's law enforcement today. And we won't be able to go too deep into those, but none, nonetheless, I think these eight areas define um, an overview for each of these topics. And the first one in relates to community policing. And it's a concept that first appeared in 1960s and certainly has gained attention in, in recent years. But without a doubt, the way our police engages the community they serve is, is going to drive and determine the success they have. A concept, a second concept relates to de-escalation and how law enforcement officers um, use uh, use of force policies or carried out in, in real life. There's a concept that many departments are starting to migrate toward, and it's a concept around sanctity of life. Uh, many of us may have seen last yesterday evening the shooting in Atlanta, uh, which is gaining a lot of attention today. And in that shooting, an officer was in, in confrontation with a, a suspect who took a taser and then uh, started running away. And as the suspect turned with the taser uh, and fired at the officer, apparently, the officer fired back, striking the uh, suspect and killing him. So the the, this, one of the decisions that it will be confronting in that situation is did the officer have to take that man's life? And that will be determined through an investigation and in public opinion in that area. But one of the things that our nation law enforcement grabs onto today is a 1989 Supreme Court case, which held that officers could use force if doing so was objectively reasonable from their point of view at that moment in time. So th those are one of the things that law enforcement grabs onto, and and uh, and as a nation, we're going to have to take a careful look at that and fully understand the consequence consequences of that. Uh, the third area that I'd like to touch on is in the area of crisis intervention, and we have to remember that our law enforcement personnel show up every day, 
and they bring their own struggles in life with them, whether they're financial strains, whether they're marriage problems, whether they're other issues or their own mental health issues. And what we're seeing today is um, more departments are moving towards providing crisis intervention programs for officers because it's been shown time and again when officers bring their baggage to work, oftentimes there's a bad result that uh, comes out of that during a day's work. In crisis intervention areas, there's about 3,000 of these programs evolving over our nation's law enforcement organizations today. But when you put that in the context that there's 18,000 law enforcement agencies, we've got a way to go. The next area that uh, I'd like to present up as consideration is the first-line supervision that officers um, have, and it's the support and and the balance of education, training, preparedness that we give first-line supervisions because they are probably the, the backbone of our nation's law enforcement because they carry out the policies. They ensure that uh, performance management, that crime pre- prevention are done in a proper concept. So uh, additional attention and first-line supervision is, is an area that needs to be clearly uh, focused on. Early intervention systems, internal affairs, recruitment, hiring, promotion, and technology and data systems. So those round out the areas. Now, specifically, as the questions that we uh, have before us today relate to, you know, how can training be improved so that violence and minority suspects are reduced? There's a a foot a front in law enforcement where they're taking greater um, uh, efforts to bring psychological evaluations into the recruitment and hiring phase of law enforcement. That's an area that I think is is ripe, and there's a lot of opportunities for there because. There, there are 18 known liabilities that come up in all police officers' actions on a day-to-day and routine basis, and there's a way to uh, evaluate these liabilities and make some judgment as to whether an individual is suited for law enforcement work today. Um, the other area in this uh, to help, you know, reduce the violence uh, on minority uh, communities is in the training. Uh, we need to modify training in our nation's law enforcement communities. Uh, it, there was a 2016 survey done that showed that, on average, um, retraining recruits received 58 hours of training in how to use a gun and 49 hours in defensive tactics, but they only re- received eight hours or less on community relations or de-escalation or crisis intervention. So. From a training perspective, our nation can do a lot more to strengthen the training that our officers and men and women are receiving and and helping frame how they impact the uh, community they're going to serve. The the third area that would would help in this area also is in the area of field training officers, making sure that they're properly screened, that they're selected, and that they have the knowledge and experience that can identify potential problems with new recruits. It's been widely reported that the officer in in Minneapolis with the, uh, Mr. Floyd's death had over uh, 18 uh, violations uh, of, of abuse filed against him over his career. And that's a critical area of intervention where intervention should have taken place at some point in time in that officer's uh, career uh, that would have helped either identify and how to modify that behavior or, or change or get him off the police force. The second question that we have before us today, it relates to 
what can we do to make minorities feel less intimidated by police when they are pulled over? And this is a significant challenge for minority uh, communities. And friends of mine have shared with me stories of how they've had to have the talk with their children, uh, especially as these children start arriving to a driving age and telling them exactly how to behave if and when the police stop them. And there are practices that certainly can be modified in law enforcement today. One example of this is Officers, when they stop you, they often say license and registration, and they'll have no other conversation with you. We should change that. Police should be told to, when they approach a such, any suspect in a car, specifically minorities, introduce yourself. I'm officer so-and-so. I'm stopping you today because your taillight was out. May I see your driver's license and registration, please? So that's a concept that is totally foreign to most police officers, and having served 30 years in federal, state, and local law enforcement, I understand that foreign concept, but we need to make change here, and that's one way of, of, of doing that. How should looting and riots be better managed to preserve property and minim, uh, minimize injury, and, uh, injury and, and loss of life? You know, what we're seeing today is our police officers show up ready to fight. They, if a riot is uh, being, or a protest group is being assembled, they show up in riot gear. I would tell you that that's an area that we can shift the dynamic there. And as opposed to showing up in riot gear, how about just show up, making sure you're engaged with protest organizers, understanding what their goals and objectives are, helping them attain those goals and objectives, and, in, and engaging them to help identify any individuals that are prone for violence. And that does take place at a, at a small level in some departments. But there, there can be done, more done to achieve this. And, and identifying protest marshals is an area that would help out, that would help identify these individuals. And, but the, the concept of not showing up in riot gear for a protest is a, a great first step in that, in that area. And then the last topic uh, on defunding uh, police and, and, you know, it, would it help solve the objectives uh, of everything that we've just talked about? And I think in this top conversation, clarity on what we mean by defunding uh, needs to be clearly established. And, you know, some advocates want defunding across the board. Uh, others want defunding just to put more funds in social services. And I think that is a, a strong conversation because we ask our police oftentimes to do things that are more social services based than truly law enforcement or a broader concept is public safety. We, we should be moving from a, a tri strictly law enforcement to how do we make true public safety officers out of our men and women sworn to protect us. Um, and so the, the, the funding concept is out there, uh, and I think some communities are starting to figure out that they can take some of these funds and put them in the social services. One of the things to keep in mind is 80 to 85 percent of any police budget tends to go to personnel costs. So discretionary funding in a police agency is limited and it's got to cover everything law enforcement does. And you put that in the context, you know, law enforcement budgets take up about on average of the 150 largest police agencies, 7.8% of a city's budget goes to law enforcement. You put that in the context of 5% goes to housing, 3% to parks and recreation. The budgets have grown over, uh, over the years. And, and now there's an outcry that, maybe we can do less with police budgets. So that's certainly, there are areas that can be modified. And at the end of the day, I think our police agencies can operate 
with less funding as long as clarity of what we expect of our officers are clearly outlined and and get them to do less in the social services and more into the law enforcement public safety components of that. So, Larry, All right, thank you. Um, let me start out with some questions for you. Um, you know, the speaker before you, uh, Michael Flam, was discussing the New York City police reaction to the riots of 1964. So here, 56 years later, uh, we have riots all over the country in New York. Um, I'm more focused on Chicago, where I am. Um, and in this case, instead of discharging their firearms uh, in the most times imaginable with a single death, it appeared that the police basically abdicated their function uh, to prevent the looting. Why do you suspect that the police stood down? Was this a decision that was made by the superintendent of police in conjunction with the mayor of Chicago? Why was this consistent approach used across the board all over the country? Why didn't, no, um, why didn't any major city engage to prevent the looting? Um, is this some sort of theory uh, about how to engage in a massive protest um, that's changed over time, something that's been taught, something that's been trained? Yeah, you know, the concept, I, I, one of the areas I think is important to recall that, you know, you're, the police are clearly outnumbered in, with the masses of people that have showed up for the peak, uh, protest. And as Michael pointed out, most of the protesters showing up are very peaceful. It's just a small percentage of the agitators that once the looting starts, then it starts to spread rapidly and individuals take the opportunity. I, I fully believe that some individuals that end up looting don't show up to loot. However, once the windows start breaking and the opportunity presents itself, it does. So for law enforcement, if you become much more physical uh, and you're, you're engaging to the point which escalates, and I think there's a concept here that they in, are in, engaging, which is de-escalation. De the less officers involved, the quicker the, the, the issue would be over with. But as soon as the officers get in heavy-handed, and there are times when they need to, that it will just escalate, and they've got to make sure they have the right numbers there to engage the, the group that they're engaged with. So it's a complex um, uh, issue. It's oftentimes uh, called by the command officers on scene because it's hard for a, a, a mayor or a city manager to, uh, unless they've set the, the rules of engagement prior to the protest, it's hard for a mayor or city to manager to, to be on the site to make that call. And it's often left up to the individual commander right at that particular point of conflict that's taking place. Are you amazed that no city decided to uh, act aggressively, that every single one of them stood down? No, it's. I, I think it's a question of our time. You know, it. It. We. We. We are as a nation. We've. We've all witnessed the horrific things that um, we. We've seen with Mr. Floyd's death and some of the other recent deaths that are, are confronting. And. And I. I. I believe. Um, you know, it's. It's. The police are truly trying not to escalate this up to another level. And as an example, just this weekend. In Seattle, uh, you know, where Seattle protesters have taken a couple of blocks there and, you know, have, you know, cordoned off from the police. Um, and uh, off to, or not an off to, an on-duty female lieutenant took her gun off and went to that zone to have a conversation with, um, with the protesters. And 
came away what the, whatever story she heard from the protesters it 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 touched her to the point that she came away physically sobbing at the story that was just shared so i look there's compassion and and i think the more uh effort like that by the police to connect with to listen to the protesters i think the more progress our nation can make um I think a number of the stores and landowners were shocked at the lack of police intervention. Um, historically, when the police was not actively protecting property and life, uh, the community and private sector went in to, uh, to protect safety. I'm thinking of the guardian angels. I'm thinking of community-based policing, not police, if you will. Do you imagine that, um, like Michigan Avenue in Chicago, might have a, a private police force to protect stores? Do you see a, a more of a private solution to this? And if so, how would the private uh, police force deal with these type of crowds? Well, private police force certainly don't have the, the true powers that law enforcement has across the board, but they can serve as some deterrent and some uh, barrier to, you know, criminal activity like there. And, and you know, I, I know where you live, Larry, and I live two blocks off of Michigan Avenue. So, um, it's it's an, an area of vital interest to me, and over the years, I have actually had conversations with um, the Michigan Avenue shop owners about, you know, how to enhance security, you know, on, from a private sector. So it does take place, and many of these shops actually do have their own security forces that are there to prevent some of these major things. And and but I don't think it'll evolve to the point that maybe the question presents itself that, you know, would there be a private force of 500, 1,000 people that would protect Michigan Avenue? I don't see that. Okay. Uh, to Michael Flam. Um, Michael, um, one of the, you, you talked about some of the similarities with New York City in 1964, um, but there are some striking differences. Um, Chicago in 2020 for example, is different than New York City in 64 in the following ways. Um, New York City was supermajority white. The mayor, police chief, and police force were almost completely dominated uh, by whites in both government, and it was a bipartisan Republican-Democratic leadership at the governor and mayoral levels. Uh, today, Chicago has an African-American mayor, a police chief, and an integrated police force, and, and the city uh, has widespread uh, government social programs. I'm wondering what... Um, we also have a city that's now pretty evenly split between non-Hispanic whites, African-Americans, and Hispanics. Um, why do you think that the change in uh, leadership process, government subsidies, didn't make a difference to prevent uh, the similar sorts of anger uh, to police brutality? Uh, well, Larry, as I mentioned before, you, you have the ongoing issue of rising expectations. Um, rising expectations and relative poverty. Um, you can make progress, uh, but if people still see themselves falling behind, um, you know, that progress is going to simply be, be washed away. Um, I also think that, you know, in recent years, we've had a great deal of, of uh, inequality, increase in inequality, um, and we see, certainly see it in core cities. We see it across the country. Um, and, and then, you know, so I, I think that's a factor. You have rising expectations. You have relative inequality, which has been exacerbated in recent years. Um, you know, you have the rise of social media as another factor. And then I think a tremendous accelerant, although we don't know exactly how it's played out, has simply been the, the pandemic and the stay-at-home orders. And, uh, 
you know, the sense of crisis and anxiety. Um, you know, in many cases, these disturbances coincided with the return of good weather, an opportunity to get outside. So there's a lot of factors, I think, coming together that, that created what I've described as the perfect storm, you know, that, that erupted a couple of weeks ago. Okay. Um, there, what the demands of the um, African-Americans protesters in that 1964 riot was uh, a civilian board review the police actions they demanded an integrated police force, and they demanded more interaction between uh, the African-American community directly with the police. Did they get their demands, and why did that turn out to be insufficient? Uh, you know, Larry, you've raised a really interesting point. So the, uh, the protesters in 1960, first of all, they wanted the officer, who, the white officer who was responsible for shooting the black teenager. Um, you know, they wanted him fired and charged. Um, they didn't get what they want um, in the sense that ultimately it was deemed a good shooting and that the officer was not removed from the uh, NYPD. Uh, but they did a couple of years later get a civilian review board. Um, you know, that really hasn't changed or helped all that much, at least not in the eyes of, of most activists. So the civilian review board, didn't, uh, the NYPD is a much more diverse uh, institution than it was in 1964. But again, maybe it, it hasn't gone far enough. And I think there, there's room for criticism there. Um, Certainly some of the training and other practices of the NYPD um, still remain a, a target of criticism um, by the activists. What's interesting about your question, Larry, and this goes back to what others have said, um, in this particular case in Minneapolis, Minneapolis already had a civilian review board. Uh, Minneapolis immediately moved to fire the officer in question. He now faces criminal charges. Um, and I think, in a sense, it's the, uh, the triumph of activists in the 60s that is why the demands today have gone far beyond what we saw in the 60s. I mean, there's a demand now for, for a structural change in policing, whether the police are defunded or dismantled or whatever. Okay. Um, let me move on to Stuart. Stuart, um, you, you talked a little bit about some of the major disruptions, and, and one of them seems to be the amount of time that uh, kids will have to go to college um, what do you think? Do you think we'll see a, a supermajority of three-year college degrees or one-year MBAs or two-year JDs? Will this become the norm? How can we tighten these programs up so that the opportunity cost can be minimized and the education concentrated? Uh, it's very, very simple, really. All you do is uh, eliminate uh, many of the holidays and, and teach during the summer. Uh, the uh, the uh, uh, this is being done right now, as a matter of fact. The calendars are being reworked, and the effect of the reworking of the calendars uh, that we observe right now among the universities and colleges is to squeeze out these uh, lengthy holidays and uh, and uh, uh, shorten the programs as a result. I think I think it's a very very compelling it's a very compelling uh, uh, paradigm, uh, you know, a program. Uh, this, this is a way. This is a way of getting costs down, and 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 of course to reduce the opportunity costs, which are staggering. And uh, uh, so I, I can't see any other direction except that one, uh, shortening. And every one of these programs, from PhD programs down to undergraduate and everything in between, uh, you know, we'll we'll do it. In, we'll do it in less time. We'll do it more intensively. Uh, and we'll do it more uh, efficiently. 
Um, one of my favorite quotes from uh, Ernest Hemingway's book, The Sun Also Rises, is, how did you go bankrupt? He said two ways, gradually and then suddenly. Right. And I wanted to use this in the context of changes in tuition pricing for the MBA. Let's just imagine for Grins that you have three students, one pays 50000 and the other two only pay 10000 each. Yes. If it's another one of the major schools announces that they'll have a flat rate of, let's say, 25000 per student, yes. how will the other school be able to charge fifty uh, if they can get equivalent education for twenty five at another major institution? Well, you know, first will of this all, be that huge sucking sound. Yeah, first of all, let's let's recognize that there's a tremendous amount of branding in this industry, right? So people will pay for the Harvard name, and they'll pay for the Penn name, and they'll pay for the Northwestern Chicago and many many other very good names. Uh, they'll pay a premium for that for the, these uh, degrees. Uh, nevertheless, the, the 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 trend toward that gap between the, what I call the sticker price and the selling price is has become so so large. Uh, we have, uh, for example, uh, in a typical uh, business school, ninety percent of the MBA students will get some funding, some some kind of fin- uh, discount. Uh, to the retail price, uh, this can't. This simply can't be can't be done. This is an extraordinarily expensive program, and uh, and so I, I think that the university is going to be driven more and more to operate like, like businesses. They still state a price, and uh, yes, there'll there'll be scholarships, and there'll be uh, and these will be funded by the alums and by uh, whoever. Uh, but if the university doesn't have the uh, funded scholarship, they're going to sell at a, a, uh, a stated price for the most part. Uh, I'm talking about directional changes now. I'm not talking about binary kind of thing. Uh, but we're going to move in that direction because the pricing right now is impossible. Uh, students compete. Uh, uh, we'll we'll get schools to compete with each other uh, to to bid for a student. It's 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 like uh, uh, hiring quarterback for the football team or the, or the the coach for the football team. So uh, this this pricing modality is is insane, and and it uh, the the universities are under extraordinary pressure, social pressure. To to uh, be more and more inclusive, and and the cost of being inclusive is just very very high, very high. Not only indirect costs, but indirect costs, administrative costs, and and uh, uh, they're going to have to find a way to either uh, get out of that business or f- find some others to fund it. They're not going to be. Well, what, one pers- one group that funds it are are international students. Uh, the Chinese and the other major uh, international students generally pay the full sticker price um, with little or no subsidy. And unfortunately, they're not going to be probably coming back to school in the fall. And so... Yeah, that's a major, is, major how, problem. Yes, yes. So how how will these universities who are currently being subsidized by the foreign students to their more inclusive domestic students, how are they going to... Given they won't have that money, how are they going to afford... Um, the discounted prices for the domestic students who, who need need help. They can't. They can't. They can't. Now, there's a short-run answer and there's a long-run answer. 
in the short run, they're going to take from their endowment uh, the reserves and, uh, and and patch together some kind of a solution that will work for a year or two. But they're going to continually worry about what the long-run equilibrium looks like, and they're going to work towards that long-run equilibrium. And that long-run equilibrium uh, is a world in which they can't depend on the Chinese to subsidize the rest of the university. And uh, so they're going to have to find they're going to have to find a modality that lets them do their teaching in a cost-effective way and their pricing in a business-like fashion. And I think it's I think it's going to be revolutionary. Somebody asked me uh, mentioned about uh, will the elite schools re- uh, remain? Uh, are they, uh, do they have have staying power? Well, the the answer there is yes, of course they do. They were very wealthy, and they will be the last to go. And 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 so. Uh, 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 schools at the top of the pecking order with the brand names are going to endure, and it's 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 the schools down the line that are going to be put under the most severe pressure, uh, including an existential pressure. Hmm? Uh, but uh, uh, the adjustment even at the top is go- going to really be staggering. I think staggering reworking w- reworking of the pricing of the labor force, staggering uh, reworking of the selling prices, and, and staggering changes in the in the uh, uh, technology of pedagogy. Hmm? All three of those areas are going to be, uh, in my opinion, turned on their head. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, questions for Charlie Schwartz. Charlie, the, the thing that in your discussion that I found most shocking was that uh, COVID among the nursing staff was only 6%, and that uh, their use of masks and hand-washing in the context of what must have been unbelievable viral loads, uh, questions two, leads to two questions. One is, to what extent do we still believe that viral load thesis uh, as being the cause of the disease? And second is, is... Um, how careful were these nurses with masks and washing their hands that it was sufficient so that 94% of them never got sick? So I think that um, we were all surprised. I I think you're you're right. It's a remarkable number. Obviously, these are trained medical personnel, and they know how to wear a mask properly, and they – were extremely diligent with washing their hands and using Purell when they were touching uh, patients, door handles in the ICU, everything, computer screens, keyboards. So this is a, this is a, a trained group, but still, um, masks really seem to work. I mean, I, I think the, uh, the Europeans sort of had it right. They had it right before us. I wear a mask to protect you. You wear a mask to protect me. Mask also decreases the chance of your touching your own face and uh, contaminating yourself. Larry, did I lose you? Sorry, I had my mute button on again. Um, if you were outside and having a meeting with a group of people, um, with or without masks, is that safe? 
Do you find the great outdoors um, one of the great precautionary places? So there's no doubt that inside versus outside is uh, there's a world of difference. Okay, um, being inside in close quarters with the ventilation that we all have read about um, certainly increases the risk. Uh, the risk of aeration of the virus, uh, the viral particles being spread across rooms, someone coughing, sneezing. Being outside certainly decreases your risk. Um, Would you I go to the University of Michigan football game with 100,000 fans? Okay, well, I don't think that's going to uh, – there's a plan where there's, you know, twenty or 25,000 fans at the Michigan games. Um, not quite sure if that's going to be the plan, but that is a plan that's being discussed. So there, there's – no way that they're going to be 110,000 fans at, at Michigan Stadium. Um, but it, say if there's 20,000 fans, would I go there and wear a mask? Uh, personally, I don't think so. Why not? I think that that amount of density is a high-risk situation. Okay. You know, the September 1st is a ways away, and we'll see how much virus there is in this region. I'm not going to rule it out. And you said you had 100 or 200 patients for COVID uh, in either the ICU or parts of your hospital, and then earlier in the week there were none. What happened? How, why did this population go from being so densely sick to so uh, sparsely infected? So that's, as we discussed last week, that's where we talked about the War of the Worlds. It just, it, yeah. it was incredible how the the virus seemingly disappeared rather quickly. Um, obviously, we stayed home here in Michigan. Um, you know, places that, did. places that did well have been had an engaged public. There's no doubt about it. Uh, we know that density, multi-generational living, those are high-risk scenarios. Um, but social distancing seemed to have worked. I, I guarantee you that masks work. Perhaps it was a, you know, the warmer weather, although that's very questionable. But the, the virus really decreased rather quickly. I don't think anyone really knows. It's Yes, I am. Thanks, Larry. Great. Um, you talked about the abandonment of ventilators except in ex um, extreme moments and that you've gone with a low-tech, low-intensive uh, solution that really depends upon um, the immune systems, our natural human immune systems, to beat this virus. Um, given that, that we've now changed our methods from, I'll call it intensive, to low-tech, low-intensive, do you think that our death rates will be substantially less in the second wave by this new approach? Yes, I think we'll, if we do in fact have that second wave that the, uh, and we've even seen using these methodologies and having better protocols, um, and as I said, this chicken rotisserie or the, the proning of patients where you rotate the patients 90 degrees, um, which again is an old technology, has shown to be very, very effective and our death rates. Um, with the vented patients when it was upwards of, you know, 60 to 80% four months ago, uh, now is also markedly reduced. 
So I think with these new technologies and also just better treatment protocols for patients who do eventually go on beds, um, the death rate, the mortality rate will be significantly reduced. Now, um, I mentioned in my opening remarks about this audience is concerned about going to the hospital. Um, remember, a majority of them said that even if they had dangerously low oxygen levels, they wouldn't want to go to the hospital. Or if they were suffering from, you know, a massive heart, you know, a heart problem or some other emergency, not COVID-related, over half of them said they wouldn't want to go to the hospital because they were concerned that the hospital may not be a safe place. Is the hospital a safe place now? Would you encourage patients to be quicker to go with COVID to the hospital or, for that matter, with another major uh, illness? I mean, I certainly think if somebody has a life-threatening illness, um, they should engage with the medical system and hospitals because uh, it's clearly, I mean, if you look at the um, uh, the nurses on the wing, I mean, only 6% of them were antibody positive. So it just shows you that with our conservative methods uh, with using uh, face masks, that it is very, very effective in reducing uh, viral infection. So I would highly encourage people to engage with the healthcare system. Um, I, I was a little surprised that uh, the, based on the fact that we aren't testing uh, visitors uh, and that while we're testing outpatients, those patients may have seven or eight days in between the time they're tested and the time they come into the hospital. I was actually surprised that we haven't seen a slight bump up um, in infection rates, either with visitors, with patients, or with healthcare staff. Uh, it's very, very encouraging. Um, and I would say based on the last four weeks, the fact that we really have not seen any bump or spike, it is um, more it's safer than I expected. Um, Charlie mentioned that not having visitors for a long time was really problematic for patients. Um, in your experience, how important is having a visitor there to um, help patients through these life-threatening moments? Uh, we've actually seen, as I believe Charlie said, we've seen, um, we have not seen as many elective surgeries, and I think part of that is related to the fact that either we're limiting visitation um, and certainly not for inpatients or overnight stays, we're not allowing any visitors. So I think that that's had a significant impact. Um, unfortunately, it really has dehumanized um, how we're treating patients and the fact that you would have patients in the intensive care unit on vents who are, you know, uh, potentially loss of life to not have the ability to have a loved one next to them um, I think is catastrophic, and I feel that that far outweighs the need of that human touch, far outweighs any potential risk um, of having um, visitation and visitors in the hospital. That being said, if, if we do have a spike or we do see a spike, and it potentially is related to the fact that visitors are not being COVID tested, um, we could change protocols and then look at that. But, uh, but I would say that uh, we should encourage and have more visitation rather than less. Okay. Uh, Mark, well, for you, um, you heard um, the cardiac surgeon said he was a little bit reticent to go to uh, a football game with 20,000. Um, is there anything that football can do to um, either improve it, the health outcomes or make it uh, be perceived as being safer 
uh, for people to attend games. And then by that logic, what sort of protocols do you think you'll put in to protect the players from each other in case there are no fans? Well, I can tell you for football, we do have, uh, we're going to learn a lot from the other leagues and how they go about it now um, in terms Mm of uh, a variety of factors. Uh, It's going to be extensive testing protocols. Uh, we have a lot of uh, a lot of committees looking at a lot of a lot of these factors, medical committees, other other professionals that are looking at this. So uh, we're going to learn a lot from from other leagues. We're going to have to be very nimble, uh, even week to week, as as this all all develops. So um, uh, separation on seats, uh, h- how you do that, uh, how you uh, provide food and concessions in a safe way, and uh, again, we're going to. Ha- we're going to learn from other leagues. We're going to constantly evaluate. But right now we're just getting from phase one to phase two in terms of even getting players back to practice. So um, there's also, of course, the legal the legal issues and working out with the union in terms of uh, protocols and also what if there's a second wave and how you, how you react one way or another uh, as these things develop. So uh, a lot to go. We have still three months till the season begins. It's, uh, it'll come quickly, but... Like I said, we'll we'll learn from all these uh, all these experiences and hopefully uh, find a safer, safer, safest environment because our players and our uh, staff, their health and safety and the fans is utmost importance. The um, ironically, one of the most congested parts of the NFL experience is trying to get into the stadium and getting through the metal detectors, where there's huge swarms of people pressed up against each other waiting to get in. Um, have you thought about what you're going to do about security and that process? Well, be, uh, beginning to think about that. There's that, and there's also if there's some kind of uh, temperature checks, can you do that in, a, in an environment where you move things along? But uh, throughput and separation, again, we have a lot of logistics and operational committees looking at all these factors. So uh, it's a really TBD on this. I don't, I don't have anything uh, firm for you at this early stage, but uh, again, we're going to the plan is to have the games in this in the locales, not sequestered like some leagues are looking at, and uh, we're going to make sure our venues are as as, cl- as clean and safe as possible, given all the concerns that you're hearing from from the medical community, even on this call. So, a lot of balancing to do, but pl- player safety and fan safety are, are have to be number one. You know, we had Tim Spector on a call a couple weeks ago, and he said that taking temperatures is not a particularly insightful way of discovering COVID, uh, but a much better way is to give them smelling salts. Have you considered uh, taste and smell alternatives versus um, versus temperature? I don't know the answer to that, and uh, that's a point I will follow up with hearing that right now. So uh, I'll, I'll make sure that's on the radar. I'm sure it is, but uh, I'll, I'll double-check, so I appreciate you bringing that to the attention. And then with regard to race relations, um, I think the elephant in the room is Colin Kaepernick. Um, do you think the league will take another look at him in terms of the owners deciding if they want him to be a quarterback, or was there something about his play that was independent of his views on race? Um, uh, listen, I, I, I can't speak to other teams. I can always tell you that for the Vikings, you know, we always make our football decisions, you know, what makes us better as a team. And at the time, we're happy with our quarterback situation, so we feel about good about the guys we have now. Um, if he's talented enough uh, and, and, and qualified enough for some team, then certainly they should be hiring him. So I don't know. I can't speak for the 31 other clubs, but uh, I know we're, 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 in, we're in a good position as far as our club. Okay. Uh, next question is for Gregory Clark. Gregory, um, you were talking about a period of time when agriculture was the predominant uh, focus of the economy in England. Um, 
why why is that very helpful to us in a in a now post industrial world? Um, yes, we're much more interconnected. Um, obviously, no one could have survived for three months not plant, not doing their planting. Um, where here in the United States, for example, we decided to take a three-month hiatus uh, from work. Uh, I guess we're rich enough now that we can dip into our endowment and and survive. Why 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 should we look at the agricultural period as a time of uh, robustness and the time of today as fragility? And, and why do we care? So, Larry, uh, uh, just two thoughts there. One is that after the onset of the plague and the plague years in England. Even though England became a largely rural society, about half of the output was non-agricultural output. It was clothing, mm-hmm. uh, entertainment, other uh, things. And so it's actually a surprisingly industrialized economy back then, but still an economy that, as I say, had this robustness. And then the second thing is just that uh, it may be that factor that is very helpful in, in keeping the economy robust. But it just seems interesting that for some reason it's not been a huge topic about people thinking about the evolution of economies, about, well, can we learn anything from the earlier robustness? And is it agriculture per se, or is it the much shallower financial system in these economies, or is it the much lower level of connections internationally? Well, I would have imagined that these economies, agricultural economies, would have also been highly cyclical in the following sense. Maybe it wouldn't have been caused by, um, you know, over-levered banks, but if there was, um, I don't know, no rain or some other or, or some other reasons for crop failures, um, take the, the Irish famine, uh, you know, in the 1840s or something where, you know, the potato famine, where you have a, a complete catastrophe and 90% of people would have to migrate out of, uh, out of you know, various counties what i mean so there's different sorts of impacts um you know i wouldn't have called ireland in you know in the 1840 to 1816 period particularly robust as an example as an economy well except that uh there was actually well the lack of robustness there it's been argued actually owed a lot to government intervention and uh, the poor law policy that was being applied to ireland uh, but I agree that that's probably the pre-industrial case, which has the, the, the least evidence of kind of robustness uh, of the system, though also one of the biggest possible shocks that you could think for an economy. Uh, but, um, the, you know, the, this, as I say, this early economy certainly had amazing features in terms of its ability to very quickly reorganize production within a matter of weeks in response to what we would think of as, as major shocks to population or output. And what, what kind of changes would they make? Uh, well, unfortunately, since we're dealing with medieval sources, uh, we actually don't get a lot of, of detail in this. But, but one thing, for example, is that in England, after the shock of the Black Death, the work rate of workers at all kinds of agricultural tasks increased very substantially. And so that's why the output actually didn't drop that much, <laughs> because somehow workers were then able to thresh, you know, eight times, you know, eight bushels of wheat per day as opposed to four, to harvest more acres per day. Uh, and so, as I say, it, 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 this is why the uh, the system was was surprisingly adaptive 
to the shocks that were coming to it. In my high school history class, uh, there were t- when the Black Death came up, um, what people said, what the, the teacher told us, was that um, this dramatically increased the labor wages and undermined the entire uh, medieval nature of the economy. Um, do you still believe that based upon the research that you've done, or was it just more of the same? Uh, well, it turns out that uh, serfdom had already been almost completely undermined in England before the onset of the Black Death, because what had happened was the, the payments of the laborers had got fixed by custom for their holdings, and there had been significant gains in land values and also some inflation. And so this became a situation like uh, New York City with rent-controlled tenants, where the lords would have been more than happy if they could have got rid of the peasants, <laughs> because then they could have leased out the peasant holdings at much higher rates uh, to free labor. And so the abolition of serfdom in England was actually uh, just a function of uh, this kind of custom of fixing uh, these rents, which were fixed already by something like 1200 and then not being able to adapt uh, to economic uh, conditions. And so it actually turns out that uh, the Black Death had very little impact in a place like England in terms of creating a a free labor market. That had actually been created already, even before the onset of the Black Death. Okay, thank you. Uh, Moving over to Gary Saul Morrison. So um, one of the interesting aspects about a revolutionary versus someone else is a a dislike or distaste or indifference to uh, major institutions, fundamental institutions in society. So you mentioned um, the church or the monarchy and the government or capitalism as institutions which they just wanted to discard. Um, why why is wanting to remove or challenge some of the basic institutions uh, a problematic or flawed approach versus reform to a system? Well, one of the... Can you hear me? Um, I can hear you. One of the uh, characteristic signs of the radicals was that they would not ask what would follow when you destroyed an institution, or they would say so only in a highly vague way, just good things. Um, and that's one of the ways you could tell whether they were, let's say, motivated primarily by the urge to destruction. Uh, the most famous of the radicals said the will to destroy is itself a creative will, uh, or mo- motivated by hatred, or motivated by a desire to um, reform and create. That's um, that, that would be a clear dividing line, and one of the ways you could tell you had this mentality. When you look at um, people, do you see that their motivation is hatred and destruction of the people who are unjust or um, you know, a specific program for creation. That's one of the ways you could tell whether you're headed to a situation like um, the Russian revolutionary situation. I don't know the answer for us, but I can tell you that that's what it was there. And why do you think that the intelligentsia would not allow any dissent? And why weren't they willing to question any of their basic precepts? Why was this forbidden, and why was this a self-inflicted censorship problem? Uh, you had a sense that we are morally right, and anyone who criticizes us is giving aid and comfort to the enemy. One of the ways you, you see this is, are you allowed to be neutral? Um, 
the, you know, in the classic distinction between, let's say, an authoritarian regime like the czars and a totalitarian one like the Soviets is uh, in the authoritarian regime, you have a negative censorship. You can't say anything overtly critical. But in, under the Soviets, that wouldn't do. You have to be always saying something in praise of the regime. You couldn't just be quiet. I thought of that because we, I, when I detected recently the slogan, silence is violence. That's precisely a totalitarian slogan. It does not allow a middle ground or just simply, you know, well, go ahead, but I'm not going to participate in it. That's what becomes uh, impossible, and that's what, you know, comes when you're absolutely, you know, scientifically and morally certain that all goodness and truth are on your side. It's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of unshakable fact. Okay. Uh, moving on to Bjorn. Uh, Bjorn... Um, we spoke a little bit uh, yesterday about what you were going to talk about today, and one of the topics was sort of the inability to do your research and how the government regulations prevented you from evaluating uh, the MMR vaccine. Um, governments tend to be very protective of health data, states, data sets because of laws like HIPAA, and it would be very easy to do controlled experiments if we knew who had uh, the MMR vaccine and who did not, and who had COVID and who did not. Um, why do you think the state won't open up and allow this sort of mass research to be done using big data? And is this consistent not only across the UK, but across, I'll call it the G20? Um, well, I, I can only speak, obviously, for the experiences we have made in our project um, uh, with like the UK databases. And I think the problem is not getting the access to this databases. I mean, as I wanted to point out in the end of my talk, um, the experience that I had is that like access to a lot of resources we normally wouldn't have, they were there and we had really good connections to like different parts also of the government that provided us access to epidemiological data. And as you say, this would be normally really good because it would say, but there must be evidence out there that are people that are vaccinated with MMR, for example, what's the disease outcome? Then the question is, do we have the right records for it? So do we know actually, I think um, it, it's more like an issue of the quality of the database then. But then the quality of the database, there are two different problems. One, you might think, well, um, how do we actually know if someone actually had, how many people actually had COVID-19? So we have like people that have COVID-19 and maybe less disease, uh, less severe disease progression that we would need, for example, maybe as a control group. Um, and they're really hard to find because they usually don't go to the hospital, so they wouldn't get tests. So we will never know of these people um, and how many there are in the, in the population. And it's used already, the calculation. And the second problem is uh, all of the comorbidities and are they recorded? And there will be difference between the different regions, for example, within a country and uh, what, what um, health records they have. And then we know that actually also from our study, it's different between different countries. So it, it makes it really hard to compare different um, patient populations, um, especially early uh, that we had in the, in the COVID-19 epidemic when there we, we didn't have any serological tests to have good estimates how many people are actually infected. Um, so it was more like a problem of getting the right data out of this data sets uh, rather than not having access to it. Um, that actually worked quite well. Um, and then it, coming to the second point, 
um, obviously, as a scientist, um, in this moment, you would always feel that uh, the best resource that you could have is free access to healthcare data, um, and you could mine through all of the databases completely freely. But then on the other side, this would mean uh, um, having having detailed patient records with um, incredible detailed information and um, uh, entertaining those big databases. The, the downside is obviously it, it creates it creates um, a data protection problem where obviously um, this data data in the wrong hands might have severe consequences for individuals in that population if they, for example, then apply for health insurance and like insurance provider would would get hold of this information. So um, it's always a little bit of how it's a little bit the crooks for the government, obviously getting there to provide as much information for the scientists as possible with free access. And on the other side, protecting individuals uh, in the cohort that are recorded in this database. I mean, one of the key aspects about your work is, you know, it may take 12 to 18 months, hopefully, to get a vaccine uh, that is both FDA-approved and safe. And here you have a vaccine that has already been approved and is safe. Um, and it would be great to get it out there, but we don't know if it's helpful. And so you really have, you know, a 12-month problem. Um, but if it takes 12 months to do, you know, the mice experiment and the human trials and the like, um, you don't really pick up a lot. So you have to, if you will, cut some corners to get this, in it, from a time perspective, get this out there as quickly as possible. Um, you know, from a social policy, from a public policy standpoint, if your results are true, it's critical that we get this thing, get that out there. So why can't um, the government be more helpful and, and being more thoughtful in these sort of situations? Um, I think, yeah, first of all, the timeline is obviously very critical here. And I think um, the way it's going is like, and that we can approach the experiments. Um, our timeline is, and this is, it, was a, it was a cautious prediction from our side, it might be a little bit quicker, but that in six months, um, we would know like the answer to our question. So I think within six months, um, and it might be three to six months to know it actually in the animal experiment if the if the vaccination would work and would have a chance to work also in humans. I mean, we would get to that point um, uh, fairly quickly. Um, so, and, and then it would be obviously critical because like it, it could at least, I mean, it would then at least give the possibility that policymakers could discuss the possibility to use this also uh, on the general public and try to ameliorate disease progression in the ones that are uh, at the highest risk. And then I think the government, what they try is, um, I think uh, the problem is obviously that the government doesn't have that much influence what is researched in the universities itself, besides like providing maybe funding, funding for different things. Um, and I think what the government did well was that there were fast funding streams for COVID-19 related work where people could apply and it was a very fast turnaround of peer review for these grants. So there was funding sometimes available within 14 days. So that's very positive. Um, I think otherwise it comes to the general problem, right? We have here now high demand with a crisis that we haven't dealt with before. And afterwards we're always, um, always a little bit, a, a little bit um, more clever and we know what it would have been right. And I think the problem is now that we have this high demand on this like antiviral drugs and like antiviral 
um, vaccines and we would like to know more about like how the disease in general would have behaved like better mathematical models and more virology research. And there may be like the only thing that you could say like about the government is that, you know, they they could have funded that in advance. So we would have had a head start um, from those problems um, instead of now trying to like hastily um, push research forward. And then obviously it has because of the clinical trials, as you mentioned rightly. So a 12, 12 to 18 month delay period when problems could have maybe um, uh, sorted a little bit beforehand by funding these research groups um, when there wasn't a direct demand, but gotcha. as a speculation. So uh, yeah. that ends the Q&A period, and I wanted just to end with, uh, sometimes these calls can get a little bit depressing, um, and I'd like to end with just a note of optimism about the world. Bjorn, what do you, what do you see optimistic that some of us might miss? Uh, I don't know. Like, I, I, in general, I'm very optimistic. I think, as we've heard, like from the um, from the clinicians, it seems to be that the uh, that the protocols that now have been developed in in all countries to deal with severe COVID nineteen cases uh, seems to have improved a lot, and death rates are definitely declining in like all countries I have looked at recently, at least. Um, I think that's a very positive thing. So I think. Um, handling a second wave of infections um, might be might turn out way better than the first wave. And then secondly, I think now we're used to like all of the measures that we have in place, like social distancing and improved hygiene, that will also further reduce like the numbers that actually come up. And that I think will especially help in countries that don't have enough ICU beds, that don't have enough medical personnel. So I think I'm very hopeful for like the next month when a second wave might um, might hit the countries again, but I think we're well, way better um, equipped. And then I think uh, it's only a matter of time until we have a vaccine. And I think bridging this time until then um, with these measures, and then maybe with like interventions that we develop right now, they could bridge further the time until a real vaccine is on the market. I think I'm very Thank hopeful you. that, um, yeah. So what about you? What optimistic note do you have? Various articles in the paper by um, commentators from across the political spectrum about the importance of the possibility of having open conversations, open dialogues. Um, if you look, you'll see quite a number of them, uh, recently by Andrew Sullivan and others, um, moderates and liberals. Um, I think that's a very positive sign. If we see more of it, um, I think that will create a possibility where you know, diverse points of view can be exchanged and therefore where we can discuss what policies are actually most effective in you know, combating what we, don't, what we don't like. Thank you. Gregory, anything positive uh, from the 13th century England? <laughs> yeah, I think there are uh, positive lessons to draw from history. I mean, the, the record in history is of astonishing human ingenuity in the face of novel uh, challenges uh, and incredible uh, adaptability. And one nice example is when the Scots were raiding the north of England, uh, entrepreneurs actually then started using castles 
uh, to lease out space for protection against the Scots in, in times of these raids. And so uh, there is a lot of ingenuity that people have, and, and that's our hope for the challenges we face in future. All right, I'll, I'll rewatch Braveheart. Uh, Mark Wilf, um, give me some good news. Well, I think the good news is sports is starting to come back. Um, you see it with golf, with uh, race cars, and these major sports coming back here in the next few weeks. And like I said before, uh, it's so clear how important professional sports and the and the NFL are to our nation. And I'm optimistic sports will resume and we'll have something that we can uh, entertain with our families. We saw it with the virtual draft. We've seen it with other activities. And I'm confident with the uh Great medical advice, and and and, uh, and people like those on the call today, we're going to uh, get it as safe as possible and, and be back at it. Al? Uh, very optimistic for 2021 of having antivirals, uh, possible vaccine, and we've been able to manage uh, COVID uh, fairly well. And the likelihood, if there is a second wave, um, I'm confident that it will not be as uh, disruptive and as much uh, morbidity and mortality as we saw with the first round. Charlie? Well, I think that we've learned a great deal. Uh, testing has improved tremendously. We can ramp up very quickly, as we discussed. This fall will be interesting with the flu season and possible second waves. Um, more patients may present to the ER thinking that they have COVID, but I think the medical community will be prepared. Um, and to Mr. Wilf, I hope to be in my seat in Michigan Stadium with a mask. Yes. Um, Stuart. I think uh, the thing to remember is that leadership matters. I think we have a lot of leadership in this country. I think that uh, there's a very good probability that we'll get, get a change. I think we're going to go through a very difficult economic period. I don't uh, pretend to know much about uh, what the COVID challenges are going to be, except uh, uh, they're formidable, painful. I don't think we're near an end with those, uh, despite the fact that we have many candidates for um, vaccines, and we we even have a couple of good candidates for uh, therapy. Um, but uh, I, I think the important thing is is the polarity in the in, in the community, and there's a, a good I think a good probability that we'll come through a very difficult social social unrest period of social unrest as a uh, as a better community than we were as a stronger community than we were with better leadership than we now have. Okay, Michael. Michael, your mute button's still on, I think. Michael Flam has disconnected. Okay. All right. With that, I will uh, I'll end this session. I would like to thank all the listeners and all the speakers for their participation, and I look forward to hearing you all next week. Bye-bye. Thank you. You can disconnect now. <laughs>